0: Thank you for listening to the Share Church podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at sharingchurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. Grab your Bibles and turn to John chapter 1, starting a new series this morning called Epiphany. Uh, traditionally, in more liturgical church circles, they would um, do the Advent series through December, and then it, as the calendar turns, it turns to um, what's called the season of Epiphany. Um, I think there's beauty in old church liturgical things um, uh, when used correctly for what they are meant to be used for, not as tradition but as springboards for us to um, learn and glory in the goodness of God. So I'm going to use this idea of Epiphany. Epiphany meaning a revealing or something that was once hidden has now been made known. We're going to study for the next seven weeks through the book of John, um, Jesus revealing himself as the Messiah. This is crucial for us that we understand that he is the Messiah, he is the Savior. He's not just a teacher, he's not a good man, Um, he's not a social justice warrior, he is not just generous, he is not just giving, he's the Son of God, he is the Savior of the world, and the Messiah for you and for me. So that's important for us. We're gonna spend uh, the first quarter or so of the year studying the book of John. So I wanna encourage you uh, first in this way. Would you read the book of John with us? Um, Just grab your Bible and open it up to John, and you can read it. Uh, The book of John is one of four what's called Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, There are four different perspectives on Jesus, so four different angles. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called synoptic Gospels. Sin meaning similar, optic meaning view or lens. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have a similar perspective on Jesus. And so uh, they match up pretty well chronologically. They use the same kind of words. They use the same um, kind of descriptions and verbiage. And John sets aside a little bit different from that. John, um, he was called the disciple whom Jesus loved. He called himself that. No one else called him that, but he called him that, which is like your oldest child calls him the, the son whom my father loves. That's, if you, this, is, this is John, uh, but that's not tongue-in-cheek. John means this deeply. John, from what we know historically, was desperate to be loved. So he found someone who loved him. Uh, this one commentator I read, I need to read it because it's so awesome how he says this. He says that John literally, literally laid his head on the chest of Jesus and heard the heartbeat of God. That's that's beautiful. John describes himself as reclining on the chest of Jesus at the Last Supper. And to think that he heard the heartbeat of God, so his perspective um, is not as kind of black and white and a uh, history class as much as it is like a vh one behind the music kind of study of jesus he 's felt the heart of god he 's heard the heartbeat of God, and so his perspective is, is different um, what 's great about him is that john um, only uses 600 different words in these 21 chapters, which sounds like a lot until I explain to you this. 600 words is the average vocabulary of a seventh grader. No offense, um, but 700 words is about the max for you. Uh, One and two syllable words mostly. Lower than that, David? Cool. Private school education. So... um, uh, So John is accessible for each and every one of us. It's why for many of us, maybe you, maybe when you began following Jesus, somebody handed you a copy of John and said, hey, read this to know about Jesus. It's it's simple enough for those who haven't, don't know much about Jesus, but the way that he uses words, he packs them in in such a way that even the most scholarly love the depth of it. So I wanna encourage you, um, find your Bible, Get up to the book of John, and let's just read together over the next month or so. Read as much as you can during the day or during the week. Gather as much as you can. We're going to start to provide some resources to help you. I just I want to encourage you. Many of us want to read the Bible. We just don't know where to start. I want to encourage us. Let's just start in John this year. Let's just start there. Um, we said last week um, that as we wait for the return of Jesus, as we, what do we do? Like In 2021, in 2022, in 2023, what do we do for the 75, 80, 100 years we're on this planet? What do we do with it? Well, Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3 that we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what we are to do. And again, I know uh, for those of us who want practicality, this is gonna, pinch, it's gonna hit a nerve for us because growth takes time. It takes devotion. It's not um, five steps to a healthy marriage or seven steps to unlocking the stock market. That's, that's not what this is. This is no get-rich-quick scheme. It's no quick way to uh, raise godly kids. It's none of that. This is... Know Jesus. How do how do we know Jesus better? And um, I know it's a desire of our leadership and our elders and staff that as a church that we would be a church who just knows Jesus more than anything else. We know Jesus. So that's our pursuits. We're going to do that through um, through the book of John. What's great about John is that John doesn't hold back. He doesn't pull any punches. John um, doesn't give us um, like three or four episodes of a documentary just to tell us the backstory, so then we understand more of what's happening. From the, from the get-go, he's just gonna put his foot on the gas pedal, and he's gonna go. Um, he's not gonna, not gonna try to flower it up. He's, he's just gonna give it to us straight from John chapter one, which means this for a few of us. There's no on-ramp for us. We're just gonna have to go from John chapter one. Like, there's no easing in. Uh, we're just gonna have to ride the ride as, as we hit it. So we're gonna start from John chapter one, and it's beautiful for those of us who just, just tell me how it is. Just, just tell me how it is. Um, I like that about people. I'm not very good about that. I want people to like me so I don't tell them the truth very often. I, I'm working on that. Um, but there are some of you that um, have really blessed my soul in that you're just going to tell me what you think about me and not pretend. And I like that. Like, if you don't like me, just tell me you don't like me. It's better that way. I don't have to guess and try to figure it out. And so, I've, you know, it's emails and meetings or whatever, and I'm, I'm great with that. This is who John is. John's just going to kind of just tell us who Jesus is. He's just going to start with it um, from John chapter 1. This is going to be a biography. Um, I love biographies. Um, I'm, I don't know what it says about me, but I, I, I love documentaries right now in my life. I love watching a good documentary, particularly about a person. I like watching behind the scenes about athletes in particular and Uh, maybe some historical figures, but I really really enjoy that. So this is John, a biographical sketch of Jesus. So you guys ready? John chapter 1. We're going to be here for like 15 weeks, so get used to turning to John. John chapter 1. The apostle, the disciple whom Jesus loved, and he begins this way. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the word. Now, he tells us at the end of the book in John chapter 20 why he wrote the book, and I skipped this. Sorry, Carrie. Uh, In in John chapter 20, he tells us why he wrote this book. He says this in John 20 that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. In other words, um, I don't have the time to tell you three and a half years worth of ministry, so I've chosen specific things. Verse 31, but these things are written so that you may believe, be convinced, that Jesus is the Christ, or the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John's not going to make you guess why he wrote the book. Here's why he wrote the book. That you might know that Jesus is the Messiah, and that by knowing that, you would believe in him, and that by believing in him, you would find true, everlasting, full, abundant life in his name. Is there anyone among us this morning who wants, is desiring true abundant life today? John's gonna to tell you how to get it. And we gotta first believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And he's specifically chosen um, his perspective and different accounts that point to this very thing. So, John chapter 1, verse 1 In the beginning was the word. Again, 600 words, so John's intention with what he chooses to use. And the first three words are in the beginning, which should take us back, right, to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, where the Bible was written, in the beginning, God created. The other Gospels, uh, Matthew begins with the genealogy of Jesus, like all the generations of Jesus. Uh, Luke begins with some family members of Jesus and Elizabeth and Zechariah and a relative named John. And so he goes there. Mark gives us a similar account. But John's going to take us further back. And I love this because I I think for us, we have to root our New Testament understanding in Old Testament scripture. So he takes us back to Genesis chapter one. So he's going to say, Jesus didn't just enter the scene at Christmas. That's a theological fallacy that there was no Jesus until the New Testament. He's going to say in the beginning, before there was creation, when the world was formless and void, Jesus was in the beginning So it's a reference to Genesis, and it's a way that John's going to lead us to this idea that with Jesus, there's been a reset on society. With Jesus, there's been a reset of our hearts. With Jesus, there's been a a new beginning happening. In the beginning was the Word. So now John's going to refer to Jesus as the Word. I said this is a simple, intentional text, but we get very confused off off the top here at the beginning. This idea of the words, let's, um, I'm going to try to use this analogy, just hope this works because we've got to move through it quickly. The idea of the word, if you want to know what somebody is thinking or feeling, um, listen to the words they say. If you want to know the invisible things that they're thinking in their heads, read their words or listen to their words. Husbands, If you want to know what your wife is actually thinking, actually listen to her words and listen to how she communicates those words, right? So if we want to know God, this is what John is saying, God has revealed himself, the invisible qualities of God, through his words or the word, which is Jesus. Again, back to creation. How did God create? He spoke his word, the Word takes ideas and makes them manifest. That's what John is saying. Jesus is the manifestation of the invisible qualities of God. It's the invisible made visible. This will help us. The author of Hebrews, Hebrews 1, says this. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, in the days of the New Testament, in the New Covenant, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir all things, of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. How does God speak? Well, God speaks primarily through Jesus. What is God thinking? Well, what does Jesus do? This is what John is us. In the beginning was the word. Uh, Frederick Bruner, who is a, a theologian who is German, obviously, he says this. We long to know who God is and what God thinks and does. And in Jesus, his most personal word, God has spoken to us in the most human way possible, giving us his innermost thoughts and heart in deeds that are as profound as his words. In Jesus, God is giving us his innermost thoughts and heart. We'll get back to more of that here in a second. Let's continue in verse one. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Notice the the presuppositions, he was with God and he was God. So here's um, a theological term called the Trinity that we're seeing here. That we, distinctive to us as Christians, that we believe that God is three in one. One being in three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. A lot of analogies about eggs and ice and water and gas and father, son, and grandfather, and those types of things that try to help us. But this is uh, kind of beyond our comprehension. But here's the point John is making, that in the beginning, Jesus was. He was there, and he was with God. At creation, he was with God. Something else that distinguishes us from other religions is that we believe that Jesus was not a created being. Um, some sects of Christianity will try to tell you that Jesus was the first of creation, that he was the first thing created. John is telling you, no, 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 no. At creation, Jesus was already there. He was with God and he was God. Separate from God, but also fully God. A distinct person of God, but with the fullness of God, the authority of God. Does that make sense? I didn't think so, but it it helps, right? Um, Distinct, but also God. So when we worship Jesus, we worship Jesus as God. He is God. This is important because if he's not God, he doesn't have the authority to forgive sins. If he's just a deputy of God, he doesn't have the authority to forgive sins. If he's just the assistant to the general manager for God, he doesn't have the authority to forgive sins, but he is God. In the beginning... Was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse two, He was in the beginning with God. So John's gonna drive this point home. In the beginning, Jesus was. He didn't just show up at Bethlehem, He's been, and He's always been. He has a firstness to Him. Uh, Theologians would call that preeminence. He is first. Verse three, all things were made through Him. Now we don't think of Jesus as the Creator, right? We think of God the Father as Creator. Well, if God created through words and Jesus is the word, then that all things were created through him, the word. And without him, without Jesus, was not anything made that was made. Everything we see has been made through Jesus. We'll come back to that. Verse four, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Talked about that Christmas Eve, whole other sermon. Verse six, now, there was a man sent from God, whose name was John. There are times when I read the Bible and I just feel like God could have been a bit more clear. Like there's a hundred billion other names you could have chosen to name people. Like you could have made up names. We wouldn't know anything different. Like Melchizedek, is that a name? I don't know. God just put consonants together and made up a name. And yet he chooses to have an apostle named John who writes about another guy named John and my other brother named John and my other brother named John. And anybody else get confused about the Marys in scripture? Which one's Magdalene, and which one's a mother, and who's what? Which one has Martha as a sister? I I don't know. And so now we've got another John, the Apostle John. We've got this John. We've got John Mark, who goes by Mark most of the time, but sometimes by John Mark. It's confusing. Uh, But it also points to the reality of Scripture, um, that people name their kids similar names, and that there are other Johns running around in the world. So this is John, and you've heard him as John the Baptist, Um, just to clear up any Confusion. I'm gonna refer to him as John the Baptizer. He wasn't a deacon at First Baptist Jerusalem. Like, he wasn't just the first um, denomination Baptist. He he literally baptized people. He was the one who leapt in uh, Elizabeth's womb in Luke. This is a relative of John. So John the Apostle is speaking of John the Baptizer, that this John the Baptizer came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that's Jesus, that all might believe through him. John the Baptist was not the light, even though people thought he was. He came to bear witness about the light. We'll talk more about John the Baptizer next week. Uh, Verse nine, the true light, Jesus, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Philippians two. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. John keeps going back to the world was made through him. He was there at the beginning. He is God. He's the creator. So this is gonna feel like two separate sermons, um, but this is a point I wanna drive home because I feel like as I've prayed and thought through our church, we need this today. So here's, what, here's the truth. Colossians chapter one uh, says that, Paul says that Jesus is the, invi- the visible image of the invisible God. And that by him, all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers and authorities. And then Paul wraps up, Colossians 1:16 with this phrase. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. So here's why it's important for us to understand that Jesus was not only present at creation, but things were created through Jesus at creation because you and I, we were created by Jesus and for Jesus. By Jesus and for Jesus. He is the creator And he is the reason for our creation, by him and for him. And when we get that mixed up, uh, we find ourselves in all sorts of trouble. If there is a basic truth for us to get deep in our bones, it's this one. We were created by Jesus and for Jesus. This might help us. Um, St. Augustine says it this way that God, you move us to delight in praising you. For you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Augustine says that God, Jesus created us, he made us um, by him and for him. And the reason we are restless is because we're trying to find our rest in other things. Um, C.S. Lewis of Chronicles of Narnia fame says it this way, if we find ourselves with the desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. I don't, I don't know exactly what 2020 has done for you, but here's what I think it's done for all of us. Um, It's made us realize nothing in this world can satisfy. The places we ran to for satisfaction and rest, um, friends, extended family, um, something new on Netflix, professional sports, college sports, health, finances, a good meal, they've all left us wanting. The point John is making in that we were created by him and for him is this. If you are pursuing your purpose, your value, your rest, your satisfaction in anything but Jesus, it will fail you. It'll fail you. Even if that thing is good, it will fail you. Marriage is a good thing, but when it becomes an ultimate thing, it will fail us. We were not created by our wife for our wife, by our husband for our husband, by our kids for our kids, by our boss for our boss. We were not created by sex for sex. We were not created by food for food. We were not created by exercise for exercise. Those things will fail us. The only way that we find rest and satisfaction is by worshiping the one who made us by him and for him. And in God's good grace... He will destroy every idol we've placed our hope in until we're left with by Jesus and for Jesus. Praise the Lord, he does it. In the places we run for satisfaction, you weren't created by your husband for your husband. You weren't created by your kids for your kids, no matter how they treat you. You weren't. You weren't created by your parents and for your parents. Created by Jesus and for Jesus alone. Let's continue in verse 11. He, Jesus, came to his own, speaking of the Jewish people, and his own people did not receive him. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, those who believed in his name. That's the whole point of the, of the book of John. He gave the right to become children of God. Notice the language in verse 13. These people were born, not of blood, or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. Even as followers of Jesus, we've been, technically speaking, theologically speaking, born of God. We have been born again. Look at verse 14 and the Word became flesh. He was not born. He became, again, preeminent. He has a firstness to him. He was not created. He is altogether separate. He is different. He's not just a good man and a good teacher and a moral leader. He is God. Everything that defines God, Jesus is. He became flesh and dwelt among us. Eugene Peterson in his translation of the Bible called The Message says that the word became flesh and blood and moved into our neighborhood. This is what's called uh, the incarnation, Jesus put on flesh. Again, let's not get it mixed up. He is God in flesh. The fullness of the deity of God is Jesus in flesh. It gives him authority in our lives. It gives him authority on the earth. It gives him authority in our hearts and our souls. It gives him authority in our marriage and our parenting. This is why this has to matter for us. He's not just a good man with good words and teaching to follow. He is God. It says, and we have seen his glory. The glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This is a simple definition, kind of the Cliff Notes biography of Jesus. This is the Cliff Notes biography of Jesus. The word of God with flesh on, dwelling among us, full of glory, grace, and truth. So do you see how if we don't elevate Jesus to God, then we don't get to claim salvation from him? If we don't elevate Jesus to God... We just live based on Jesus-like principles, how it doesn't save us. This is crucial. It's why John begins with it. Full, overflowing with grace and truth. This word um, full, (coughs) excuse me, is the same way that our seven-year-old pours chocolate milk in the morning. I pour chocolate milk knowing that you can't have too much of this or I'm going to lose you for the day he pours chocolate milk with, if I don't get some on the counter, I haven't gotten enough. Uh, when, he is, when his cup is full of chocolate milk, it touches everything around it too. This is what it means, that he's full of grace and truth, that every nook and cranny <clears throat> of the counter is full of grace and truth. Verse 15, John the baptizer, again, that gets confusing, John the baptizer bore witness about him And cried out, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because in fact, he was before me. More on that next week. Stay tuned. Verse 16. So after that um, paragraphical statement, now John continues his statement from verse 14. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. So the reason it's important that we understand that he is full of grace and truth is because there's something coming out of that. He's not just full of grace and truth to be full of grace and truth. He's full of grace and truth because he has to be that something's gonna come out. And this is what's coming out in verse 16. From his fullness, from the fullness of grace and truth, all the way back to the previous verses, from the fullness of his grace, grace and truth to the fullness of him being deity, of him being full of God, to him being full of being the authority of God from creation. His fullness is based on his firstness. If he's not first, it doesn't matter what he's full of. But because he's first, right, he's preeminent. He was with God and is God. Because he is that, he's full of God, he's full of authority, and he's full of grace of truth. From this fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Grace in place of grace. Grace piled up on grace. Grace stacked on grace, upon grace, upon grace, upon grace. Grace scares a lot of us. Because our grace has been taken advantage of, or we've seen grace taken advantage of. And so we have decided within our own hearts that we will become the sheriff of grace to make sure that no one else takes advantage of grace. And so we will talk about grace, but we'll also talk about that there's an end to grace. Well, John would disagree with you. There is no end to grace. It's grace upon grace upon grace. But it's not human grace. This is godly deity from the fullness of God kind of grace. And this grace is different than the kind of grace that we give people that just sweeps things under the rug. This is light that calls out darkness, calls it what it is, and says, I know and I still love you. This is grace upon grace from his fullness. Because he's full, we can have grace upon grace. Verse 17, you see the law was given through Moses. That was one form of grace. The grace that would call us out, that would point out that we don't have enough, that we are sinners, that we can't be perfect enough. That first bit of grace through the law was given through Moses. But grace and truth has come through Jesus Christ. The grace of grace and truth through Jesus piles on top of the grace of the law, and it keeps piling and keeps piling and keeps on piling. We live in a culture where grace and truth are mutually exclusive. They can never coexist, right? Bible says otherwise. The only way for grace and truth to exist is if they exist together. You will never have grace without truth, and you will never have true truth without grace. Grace and truth came through Jesus. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, this is Jesus at the side of God. He has made God known. He has helped us to understand God. Jesus is the manifestation of God. Um. Maybe I'm alone, but maybe I think we can all relate to this. Have you ever read the Old Testament and left with more questions about God than actual, like, statements about God? Have you ever read through the Old Testament? You've read uh, Leviticus. Maybe you've read some stuff in Exodus. You've read, you've read the ways the prophets speak on his behalf. And you go in thinking you know something about God. Then you, reveal, you read that, and you're like, I, I have no idea. I have no idea who God is. Because at one point, he seems so loving and kind, and then the next moment, he seems like he's really angry. At one moment, he seems like he's gonna extend grace, and then the hammer just comes down. And it feels a bit like God might have some sort of personality disorder in the Old Testament. You can say that. It feels sometimes in reading the Old Testament, it's why we don't read it. It's just confusing. It's mysterious because we've been told one thing about God, but this doesn't add up. Because what I've been told about God doesn't make sense here. Well, here's what John is saying. That Jesus... Um, puts to rest any mysteries and false understandings we have about God. That the fullness of God in the Old Testament has been exhibited through Jesus in the New Testament, which is why Jesus would say, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come to fulfill them, to fully fill them. Jesus, everything you want to know about God, can be found in the person and work of Jesus. So you want to make um, Exodus make sense? Read about Jesus in light of Exodus. You want to make the Ten Commandments make sense? Then read about the Ten Commandments in light of Jesus. Jesus is the manifestation of God. The mysteries of the character of God are made clear in the person of Jesus. Not because he's writing about God, not because he's a really good reporter who took a lot of notes, but because he is God. He's him. He doesn't get it wrong. Everything that Jesus says and does in the New Testament is what God says and does. It's him, fully him. So if we have questions about, well, how would God deal with this or how would God handle me in this situation? What does God really think about me? Read the book of John. Yeah, but how does God really feel about my spouse? How does God really feel about my kids? Read the book of John. Because the question then is, okay, so if, From his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. But what does that look like? Like, what does that even mean? What does that look like? Well, here's the beauty of it. John's going to spend the next 20 chapters telling us what it looks like. He's going to tell us what grace upon grace looks like. Because when we think about grace upon grace, there's two reactions for us as humans. One is, that doesn't apply to me. Um, what I've done is too much. The things that I've said is too far. The ways that I've claimed to be one of his and the ways that I've lived, I'm beyond that. Let me work my way back and then maybe the grace of God would work for me. Secondly is, well, I don't need that right now because I'm, I'm okay. I'm reading my Bible. I'm going to a small group. I'm in a discipleship group. I don't need grace because I'm doing good. Grace is only for people who screw up and I'm not screwing up. Both Sides are completely arrogant. Obviously, the one to say, well, I don't need God's grace. Look at me. Obviously, that's arrogant. But have you ever thought that for you to say that you can out the grace of God means that you think you have more power than God does? That whatever you've done in your life is more powerful than the resurrection of Jesus? As if to think that your sin is in some way more powerful than what you read in the Bible. I don't know. Grace upon grace, upon grace, upon grace. So what does, that, well, what does that look like? Who does that apply to? Does that even matter? There's got to be some end to it. Well, John's going to tell us that actually, no, there is no end to it because it's from the fullness of God, because there is no end to that, because from the beginning, it was. So is there enough grace for a religious leader who can't admit that he has doubts, Is there enough grace for a religious leader who's doubting that Jesus is who he says he is? Let's read about Nicodemus in John chapter 3, and I would say, yeah, mm -hmm. there's grace upon grace. Is there enough grace for someone who's been married multiple times and now is currently exchanging sex for rent? Well, let's read from the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, and I would say, absolutely, there is grace upon grace. Is there enough grace for a wealthy man who's realizing his money and authority can't heal his family? I would say, yeah, let's read about the official in John chapter 4. There's grace upon grace. Is there enough grace for people who are hungry and starving? Then let's read John chapter 5. Yes, there is grace upon grace. Is there enough grace for someone whose sexual sins have been found out, whose adultery has been found out and is thrown in front of the the ruling council at the time? I would say, yeah, read John chapter eight. There is grace upon grace. Was there enough grace for someone who has been paralyzed and sick for 38 years and is not sure they want to get well at this point? Well, yes, let's read about the man at the pool of Bethesda, and I would say, yes, there is grace upon grace. Is there enough grace for a blind beggar for a man dead for four days. Is there enough grace for a woman accusing Jesus of not loving her and her family enough? Is there enough grace for people who have been counted out for 30 years to follow Jesus? Is there enough grace for a man opposed to Jesus, literally nailing him to a cross in the centurion? I would say yes, grace upon grace. Is there enough grace for someone in their last dying breath who has to be saved while hanging on a cross? And I would say, yeah, let's read about that thief. There's grace upon grace. And finally, is there enough grace for someone who claims to love Jesus and want to follow Jesus and yet betrays him not once, but three times on the night of his death and lies to cover it up. Is there enough grace for even him? I would say yes. Let's read John chapter 21 and the restoration of of Peter, grace upon grace, church. Yes, and amen. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. the Pharisees in the room who would say, yeah, but what about truth? Keep reading. Because the fullness of grace is only found in truth. Only found in truth. So church, we're going to spend 15, 16 weeks studying Jesus, but I have to begin with this, that there is grace for you did you start your plan and your resolution to read the Bible last year and then gotten into Leviticus a kiss and haven't picked it back up since? There's grace upon grace for you. Have you yelled at your kids this past week? There's grace upon grace for you. Have you looked at things on your computer or phone that you are um, embarrassed to admit? Yeah, there's grace upon grace for you. Have you come home to get intoxicated with your whiskey because you have to numb out from the world and yes, there's grace upon grace for you. Are you following Jesus with everything that you have this morning because you so deeply desire to be with him? There's grace upon grace for you too. From his fullness. If he is who he says he is, then there's real grace available to each and every one of us this morning. We were created by him and for him. And once we understand that, then we can drink in the grace that exists for each and every one of us. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? we wrap up this morning. There is good news that in the beginning was the word. There is good news. Good news for the blind beggar. Good news for the paralyzed man. Good news for the adulterous woman. Good news for the woman at the well. Good news for Peter and good news for John who lays his head on the chest of Jesus. And the good news isn't found in your effort, isn't found in your striving and in your church attendance and you're you're wearing the right things and saying the right things. The good news is found in the grace of God extended through Jesus because he is full of God. He is first and he is full. Is there anyone this morning who would say, I need the grace of God today? I need it to get through what I'm going through. I need it for the power to get through um, what I'm doing dealing with in my parenting and in my marriage and in my job. Anybody at this point, just raise your hand and say, I need the grace of God today. There should be more of us, but yes, yeah. And maybe for some of us, we've been chasing things to try to satisfy. What only the grace of Jesus will satisfy. And here is the task for us today that we would rest in the grace of God and his grace upon grace upon grace. And whatever your grace you need today, there's enough for it, and it'll come again tomorrow and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. Maybe some of us in the room this morning who have never given our lives to Jesus. Um, we've never had the epiphany of the revelation that Jesus actually is the Messiah. Anybody here this morning who would say, no, for the first time, I think I'm seeing Jesus as the Messiah and I I wanna give my life to him. I wanna follow him. Anybody this morning, you'd raise your hand and say, I want salvation through the Son of God this morning. God, we are thankful and grateful and that seems trite and doesn't even seem to come close to what I feel for your grace in my life. God, there are many of us in the room are restless today. Our hearts are anxious, we're fearful, we're frightened about tomorrow. We're not sure we can make it through today. God, would you um, give us the courage to surrender the things we're chasing that aren't satisfying, that aren't giving us rest, that we would just fall back into the ocean of your grace today is stacked up, piled upon pile upon pile of grace. Uh, We're resting in it and depending on it today, Father, depending on it for us personally, for our families, and for our church. We'd be a church that is uh, full of grace, grace from you and grace for ourselves and grace for others. True grace, true grace from your fullness. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.